Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Liz McDonald. Welcome to the podcast, Liz. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. And for some of you that know the name Liz McDonald, this is not the Liz McDonald that's in Mesa, Arizona, um, wife to Eric McDonald, that is our great ally parents. This is a different Liz McDonald, an equally wonderful woman. Um, just wanted um, that lives in Utah. So I just wanted our listeners to be clear. We've had Liz McDonald and Eric on the podcast earlier. We're going to talk in this podcast about the research that Liz did at Utah Valley University, um, just working to bridge the gap between active LDS parents and young adults that have separated themselves from the church. This is a podcast to just try to find common ground that Liz is doing to keep the family circle together, even when there's differences in religion. Um, is that a fair introduction? Yeah, that's great. So Liz will give us a little bit of her background. That'll be one section of the podcast. We'll get into the research and also hopes for the, out, for the outcome. But the goal of this podcast isn't really to bring people that have left the church back to the church or invite people in the church to leave. Um, the goal of this podcast is just like Elder Cook suggested, diversity, unity, and diversity. So there's great diversity in LDS families. Some families have every member of their family that believes, and some families, which may be the majority, once children are in their 20s and 30s, have some children that have perhaps stepped away. And that can be difficult, obviously, for LDS parents. And so the work that Liz is doing and the things we're going to talk about is how do you keep the family circled together? And there may be even nuggets that come up of what we can do to help people, maybe or maybe not, that are close to stepping away, that maybe we can do a better job of just helping them in their journey. I know a lot of people that have stepped away actually wish they found a way to stay, but we sometimes as active Latter-day Saints didn't have the tools to fully kind of understand where they are and what to do to help them in their journey. Now, saying all that, I do, I do want to give space for people that feel their path is to step away from the church um, and just honor those people that felt their path is, and I'll just continue to love you and support you and see you as a member of the same human family. Um, but that's probably enough of me talking. Um, is that okay, Liz, what I shared? Yeah, I love that. Will you give us, before you get into research, give a, introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. So, um I am the other Liz McDonald. I live <laughs> just a couple miles away from you, Richard. And um, I work at a school in Holiday. It's a charter school, um, which my husband and his family and I um, founded. And Very cool. Yeah, it was not mostly my work. I will say it was mostly his sister, who's the current director and doing a wonderful job. But it's a Waldorf school. It's very developmentally focused and as a part of that community, I've started teaching parenting classes um, together, actually, with my husband's mother, with my mother-in-law, who, just to be a trend breaker, is one of my closest friends. I actually met her before I met my husband. Um, and so we, we've been teaching these parenting classes together, working with lots and lots of parents over the past five years or so. And um, yeah, and that's kind of where the that's where the idea for this research began was just in my background working with parents and trying to help parents better understand their children and better connect to their children in, in meaningful and kind of sustainable ways, I guess. Thank you. And tell us 
kind of where you are, your station in life, married, single, kids, no kids, and if, and share where you are with the church. Sure. So um, I, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. So I um, moved across the country when I was 17 and was thrilled to not have to go to church anymore, which we can talk more about later. Um, and then decided that I really wanted I think partly to please my parents and partly to just maintain the community ties that I was um, really happy with. There were a lot of people that I really cared about and respected in the church. So I ended up getting married at 21 in the temple. I was married for about 10 years um, and it was a difficult marriage. We had three kids and, and then I filed for divorce at the end of 10 years. And um, I would say that in sort of, as my marriage broke down, some of cracks in the structure of the church and sort of the patriarchal structure started to really show up for me. And I felt um, quite vulnerable, I would say, in many ways, as I lost the protection, which I didn't realize that I had of this priesthood leader in my home. And I didn't see it until it was gone. I didn't recognize how vulnerable people without that kind of are in the church. Um, and for that and many other reasons, I I started just stepping away at that point. And so I've been inactive now for about 10 years um, and upfront about that with my family for, I'm going to say about six or seven of those years. There was a period of sort of, you know, being careful about what I was wearing at family dinner and all of that, which will sound familiar to many listeners, I'm sure. Just thanks for sharing about your journey. Um, Are you married now? I'm married. I'm very happy. I guess you inferred yeah. that because you have a mother-in-law. Yeah, so. <laughs> I have a mother-in-law. Um, I'm yeah. I'm definitely not teaching parenting classes with my former mother-in-law. That would be tricky. Um, that would be breaking. <laughs> that would ground. be that would be really breaking every trend. Um, but yeah, I'm married to one of my favorite people in the world, which feels very lucky every morning when I wake up. And um, yeah, and we're, we're we're having a great time. He's a teacher at the school where I work as a counselor. And yeah, some people that have stepped away from the church want other people to step away the ch- from the church too, mm. um, with them. And other people have stepped away from the church are fine that people are in the church. Share with our listeners kind of where you are on all of that. Mm. And I realize it's complicated because most people have stepped away, stepped away from the church. There's some pain there. Yeah, of that whole process. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. I think the pain is kind of the driving feature there. And that's actually really pertinent to my research that we um, we want to spare the people that we love pain if we can. I think that that's a normal and kind of a loving human drive, even when it's not healthy or well-boundaried. <laughs> and so I see the good intentions behind people either trying to you know, pull people back into the church or keep them in the church or take them you know, with them now that, oh gosh, my eyes have been opened and um, and I'm so much happier out of the church and you should also be out of the church. Um, and I think it is coming from a loving place, but I also, um, my intention is really just to create more space in the conversation, I guess, to have a conversation because it's conversations that we're often just not having at all. It's, um, you know, don't ask, don't tell in many families. And so I'm trying to create space for curiosity and understanding and compassion without necessarily a motive. Um, yeah, I just, I would never want that kind of power over someone else's life 
to push or pull one way or the other. That's great. I just think that's what Christ would want us to do and what he taught us to bring us together. And um, as a parent of kids, I like it when my kids get along, even in their differences. And I think um, getting along when we're all the same is one thing, but getting along when there's differences is perhaps the higher bar and I think takes a greater application of the gospel of Jesus Christ to do that. Yeah. Talk about your capstone project. Um, <laughs> tell our listeners just um, where you go to school, what your upcoming degree is in, and what your capstone project is. Yeah, so I, I actually finished my degree in December. Congratulations. Thank you. It does. It feels good. I, I officially have a bachelor's degree, which remember when I said that I moved out when I was 17? It's been 23 years since then, and I finally finished that degree. <laughs> That's really cool. So um, for part of my degree, I did a capstone project. I did a qualitative research project and just kind of independently um, with the help of a really kind advisor named Darren Ecton at UVU. Um, just kind of learned how to do qualitative research with his help and, you know, a couple of good books. Um, and what I wanted to look at was just like you said, when we were kind of introducing ourselves before the podcast began was how much you've learned by letting people tell their own stories. And so in looking at the kind of damage that's being done to relationships where we don't agree um, relationships where maybe there's a values mismatch or an, an intergenerational gap, um, particularly with religion. I think that there is a lot of unnecessary suffering and distance and damage that's done relationally. Um, and I was just curious about whether there are ways of getting better information out there, more understanding through research that could help to sort of bridge that gap and basically just help give better information to the parents in particular about what this experience is like for their children. Um, and so that's what I decided to look at. I decided to start, I, I do a lot of restorative practices in my work at the school. So I know you should start with the victim. And I think in this case, the children are very, it's fair to say the victims of some pretty hurtful behaviors. And within my research, um, that was certainly the case. And I, I also want to clarify that I know that there are a lot of families where there is not this type of conflict um, where parents are very understanding and naturally compassionate and curious. And I recruited my sample by asking for people who had experienced this type of conflict. And so I just want to say that I know not all families do. Um, but the people that I talked to, so I, I interviewed 15 um, men and women between the ages of 21 and 30. And I was surprised by the degree to which their experiences were similar by how much overlap. There were three pretty significant themes which were universal, which really surprised me. I, I expected more variation. I expected more. And of course, the expression of the themes was very different from family to family and person to person. Um, but it was 100% of my sample that experienced these three things. And they were um, the first one that almost everybody talked about was certainty and inflexibility of the worldview of the parents. So this rigid, religious, um, Mormon worldview that we have the truth, we're so lucky, and sort of this like almost pitying view of everybody else, this sort of condescending, um, I would say not very Christian view of people who don't share that worldview. 
And this led to a, a real lack of curiosity about other perspectives, particularly with their children. So um, they had never asked any questions. They'd never, and many of them, their stories revealed that the parents were quite threatened. Um, I think even at the prospect of having to hear what these kiddos were experiencing that caused them to leave. And so it was just almost a complete lack of curiosity. Nobody wanted to know um, why they had left. And I think Lindsay Hanson Park, she just, I don't know, maybe three weeks ago posted on Facebook, for those of you who have left the church, what has been the most painful part? And I think within about 24 hours, she had 400 and something replies. And almost all of them were Nobody's ever asked me why I left. And I thought, well, that's such an easy thing to change, that we can learn to be curious even when we're uncomfortable. Um, And because I work with a lot of parents, I think I know why we don't naturally do that. And we can talk some more about that later. But so that was the first theme that was universal. The second one was that... Just comment on that a little bit. Yeah. And I'd like you to maybe stay on that a little bit. Okay. Um, I, you know, I think our listeners know that I'm a believing, committed member of the church and curious. And I think, and maybe your paper gets in this, I think for those of you that are believing members of the church, I think it's okay to be curious about other religions, be curious about why people are stepping away, be curious about just just the world. Mm-hmm. To me, that's part of my religion is to is to learn. And I'm at a point where I'm not worried of learning something that, that will shake my faith or cause me not to believe in my faith. I know enough about our history and current issues, and some of it's pretty complex. And but I I think you can do what Liz is asking you to do if you're a believing member um, without losing faith in the church or compromising what you believe. Um, just to piggyback on, I talked to an elders corn president. I put this in my book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And my this elders corn president visited with a man that had lived 20 plus years in the ward and never and hadn't been active. And the elders corn president developed a good enough relationship with this man. He just said, I won't use his name, but he said, tell me why you don't go. And this man just got big tears in his eyes, Liz, and says, I've lived in this year ward for more than two decades, and no one's ever asked me that question. Wow. And I, it created a real connection between the two of them. Mm-hmm. I think of the doctrine of the parable, the good shepherd. The good shepherd knew the sheep well enough to know where he was because he knew why he left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he knew the backstory of where to find him. So I think I think it's okay to ask these questions. I think yeah. it helps bring us together as common ground and and keep our family circled together. Yeah, so. absolutely. And I think for me, um, curiosity is the antidote to judgment. And I think what we're running up against a lot of the time with these parents and in ourselves is judgment. And I think the judgment comes from fear and need to feel in control. You know, there are lots of, driving forces, I think, behind judgment. Um, but yeah, for me, I think whenever I feel myself slipping into judge judgment, which happens a lot, I'm a pretty judgmental person, I think naturally, um, I try to step back in my good moments and move into curiosity and think, okay, what's going on here? And I think 
we act like it's so easy to want to know more. But with our children, I think it's very difficult, actually. And it's not natural and it's not intuitive. We want to teach them why what they're doing is wrong, whether they're throwing a tantrum on the floor at the grocery store and embarrassing us or um, have come out as homosexual Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it is. If they're doing something that we disagree with, dressing in a way that we don't want them, you know, you can't leave the house in that young lady, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, Whenever they're doing something that we disagree with or that we feel isn't in line with our values, I think it's actually incredibly hard to get curious. And I think it's appropriate. And I think some of this is age specific is probably you understand really well and with the work you're doing. You know, I, I think younger kids, teenagers and kids in their 20s are three different groups that yeah. as a parent, your role changes as yeah. those kids age up. Hopefully, right? Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully it does. Just one other quote. Um couple other quotes, listeners, and I've shared these before. They're in my book. This is Elder Uchtdorf um, in a worldwide training in 2012. Um, we can block the growth and knowledge our Heavenly Father intends for us. How often has the Holy Spirit tried to tell us something we needed to know, but couldn't get past the massive iron gate of what we thought we already knew? I love the visual of the massive iron gate, Liz, because I have those in my life, and i and sometimes that prevents me from learning, especially if I'm older, if I have an education, if I'm male, if I'm white, if I have a lot of privilege. I think sometimes I've heard any researchers that might skew more to people like me to hold on to these massive iron gates just because of the privilege I have in society. Yeah. I love this other quote by another one of my favorite institute teachers. It's some matters it's better to be intellectually uncertain rather than superficially sure. Mm-hmm. This will leave us a great deal to be certain about while maintaining the humility to learn. I love that. So I, I love the idea of maintaining uncertainty and humility in the same vein, because I think those two things go hand in hand. And we can't we can't we can't be certain and humble. I don't think that works very well. And I believe the church is true, listeners, but that doesn't mean that. I then I'm closed off to learning more about the world, the goodness in other faiths, the paths different people take. That isn't threatening to me. In fact, I'm doing too much talking here. I'm a little uncomfortable doing this much talking. But in in some ways, my knowledge of the restored gospel gives me more peace when someone chooses a different path because I believe in this plan of salvation and heavenly parents and this just this love. You know, so I, I have more peace that my heavenly parents are in control. They're, if there's people I love that have stepped away from the church, they're heavenly parents, children too. And they're going to take care of them. And we just don't know everybody's outcome right mm-hmm. now, um, where they're going to be in the next life. So it just gives me peace and the ability to kind of let go. And, and, and for me as a parent to focus on things I can control, and especially as my kids age up, there's a lot of things I can't control and be at peace with that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Back to you for more if you want to share on this first section or if you want to go to the second section. Well, I was just going to share one more thing um, because I think, yeah, I think what you're saying about the nature of God is actually really important. And actually one of the one of the driving reasons um, for me having, I think, the faith to leave. And that's actually what I saw a lot in my research was that it took a lot of faith um, from these subjects, gosh, 
that things could get better with their families, even though they were incredibly difficult in the moment. And even though they felt like maybe there was like this act of destruction that they were participating in, that it was, you know, they were telling parents things that they didn't want to hear. And it was sometimes incredibly um, abusive, I would say. I think it did take a lot of faith for every one of my subjects to leave. And faith in what? I would never presume to say that it was the same for all of us, but I know for me it was faith in God. And in many ways, it was the differences between what I had experienced of God firsthand and the conflict between that and what I was so often hearing about God from other people, particularly in church and in primary. You know, I was playing the piano in primary for a couple of years, and I remember hearing things that I thought like, oh, I don't think, <laughs> I think you're missing the mark on this one. I think. Do you want to give our listeners an example? Yeah. Um, just, you know, in junior primary, kids get wiggly. They've been sitting there for a long time. And I remember one of the, one of the primary leaders saying something about how the Holy Ghost leaves when you're too, when you're too wiggly. And I thought, oh gosh, like I, in my experience, the Holy Ghost, God, all of that connection to the divine is there all of the time. And when I have felt like it was gone and I was disconnected from it, it was because of shame, um, which was mine and not, you know, it wasn't coming from God. It wasn't coming from the Savior, certainly. And and so to hear, and actually that leads in really nicely to another theme in my research, to hear the way in which worthiness is earned, you know, that God's love is unconditional, but he'll love you a little bit more if you're perfect. We have this atonement, but please try not to use it. And that's what I was hearing a lot in primary was, um, yeah, just this really mixed messaging around the nature of God and the nature of God's love, which is so much more capacious and um, so much bigger than I think we can really even contemplate on a human scale with our human minds. I don't think that there's a way to language it in the way that I've experienced it. And that's one of the themes that came up that was really painful in my research was the ways in which all of these kids had learned um, that they needed to earn God's love and their parents' love. I love this section, Liz. So just so I understand, because my mind's organizationally, we've talked about this first section around certainty Mm -hmm. and flexibility. We're on to this second section. Does it have an umbrella name? Um, the conditional construct of worthiness and love. Okay. Yeah. What you're saying fits perfect into that. Yep. And that is, it's, I mean, it is just as kind of horrifying as it sounds, I think. Um, and just as conflicted as it sounds, it doesn't actually make any sense. It's not what we teach. It's not part of the gospel. Um, but it's certainly worked its way into how we instruct children to behave. And I would say how we manipulate children to behave, children of all ages, um, And I think, again, it's coming from fear that we want to control because we want to spare them pain. We want to keep them safe in ways that I would argue are not always helpful. And I'm not sure that staying safe is really the goal of our earthly life. (laughs) I'm not sure that it's maybe not the highest goal of our earthly life, right? Um, And the, the biggest problem with this aspect of the data was that it creates... Um, a big gap between the self and this unattainable ideal version of the self that you then think you need to, you know, sort of put on this happy face for your neighbors, show up to church a certain way, um, show up for your parents a certain way. 
And then knowing on the inside, all of the things that like, oh, but if they really knew, if they really knew what I'm really like, nobody would love me. And for children, it's particularly harmful because um, they can't, and many adults can't either, to differentiate between the love of their parents, which they can see as conditional, that their their parents' love and approval really is, condi- right? Like we lose it, we lose our tempers, we withhold love and approval to try to get our kids back on track. And they, our children cannot differentiate between that and God's love, that it's one and the same for them. And so they assume that God is the same way and that like, oh, geez, you know, like, and the gap between the real self, the self that we know that's deeply flawed um, and maybe wants all sorts of things that we've been told we shouldn't want, feels all sorts of things that we have been told we shouldn't feel, thinks all sorts of things that we've been told we shouldn't think. And the unattainable ideal, that gap is where I, I think all mental illness is sort of born. I think it's really, really damaging to, to learn that like this part of me is presentable and lovable and this part of me is not. And so I will fragment it off, splinter it off. I will compartmentalize. It creates a deeply disorganized sense of self, which requires so much lying and hiding to maintain and is so damaging for relationships because, of course, then when you do love me, um, you're, you're not loving me. You're loving what I'm presenting to you. And so, in fact, no matter how much love you put into that bucket, it just falls right through. It's, it's damnation is what it feels like to me. It is damnation in a relationship. It's not good for growth. It's not good for relationships. It's not good for connection. Um, and when I think about, <laughs> I don't know, I don't, when I think about what it might actually be like if I believed in the concept of hell, I think it would be that, this falseness that we're sort of, um, I don't know, exploiting and, and using each other that way. It's a really good segment, Liz. I hope you realize how articulate you are <laughs> about the ideas and um, the concepts. You're very good at communicating that. Um, in a way that's very helpful for me and I think for our listeners. Talk to parents. So let's say there's parents that recognize what you said and they it, it clicks with them and, and they go, okay, I don't want to do that. I want to create a family culture where my kids can be authentic and they don't have to have this double self. You didn't use double self. That's my word. Yeah where they're presenting one thing to the family and the world and the parents have been in reality, they really, there's this other side of them mm. and creates all that dissonance. Talk to those parents what they can do. Mm. And that's a whole nother hour oh, podcast. It is. This is another, this is, I don't know, maybe somebody's probably already written this book. If I find out what it is, I'll tell you. But um, yeah, I think showing up yourself authentically as a parent is step number one. I think learning to feel what you feel, see what you see, know what you know, um, and to really connect your actions to your values on a really personal level. I think one of the troubling aspects of growing up Mormon is that it's really easy for parents to outsource values and to say, we do this, we don't do this, because it's, you know, because we're Mormon. 
because we're LDS, because we go to church. I know we're not supposed to say Mormon anymore. It's so hard to stop. You're okay. Um, There's a 10-year grace period on oh, this good, podcast okay. for That's that. such a relief. Um, and I think the parents that I've seen who have been the most sort of effective in parenting and connecting and, and in transmitting their values to the next generation, I think it's because they've communicated those values in a deeply personal way, that it's not because it's right and wrong even, but that it's... Um, this is so important to me. We go to church on Sundays because it brings me personally so much joy. And so if you're going to church, like parents who communicate it on that level, if your kids, if you're taking your kids to church, make sure that they know why, make sure that you know what, what you love about it. If you love the hymns, if there are certain hymns that you hate, if there, are, you know, but be really upfront, I think, and direct, especially as your kids get older with why you're making the decisions that you're making. Um, and why your values are your values. And I think the more that we can give ourselves permission to kind of inhabit our own bodies, our own experiences in the world, rather than this sort of like set of shoulds that I should feel this way, I should think this way. Um, and the more that we can kind of communicate that, the more that our children will also grow up with the ability to see what they see, know what they know, feel what they feel, and get the sense that it's okay, that it's okay to deviate from, from what we as their parents feel and see and know. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah. And I guess that goes to the third theme, which was universal. Um, yeah. Tell us the third theme. Which was disconnection. So there were three kinds of disconnection, which was really troubling from the perspective of the children that they saw in their parents. The first was that the parents tended to be quite disconnected from themselves. And that's kind of what we're talking about right now, that like they were disconnected from their own values, that they had outsourced a lot of their family's values. Um, there wasn't a personal connection or a why or a, um, a sense of love or joy with the values that they had adopted. Um, they often didn't know what they wanted, which I think is really interesting. And I think just from a human development perspective, desire is critical for selfhood. We have to know what we want. And I think if our values are coming from what we want, then they're personal. And if we can communicate that to our children, then they're powerful. Um, but these parents, um, they, yeah, they just, they often didn't know what they want and couldn't stand up for what they want and felt guilty about what they wanted. And so would sort of circumvent and from the, from the kids' perspectives, again, obviously I didn't talk to the parents. I would love to talk to the parents, but I haven't yet. From the kids' perspectives, their lives were very duty-bound and sort of obligation-bound. Um, and that, I think, naturally leads to the second form of disconnection, which was disconnection from others. That if there's no, if there's no selfhood in a person, if they have not taken time to develop them, themselves, their self, um, sort of like the healthy ego that Jung and Freud talk about, the I, then who is there to relate to? Who's going to connect to these children? And so the children might be sort of like seeking connection to somebody who's not really home. Um, and it makes human connection very, very difficult. We connect through emotion. Um, and these parents were often really disconnected from their own emotional experiences. And a lot of the subjects in my study talked about how emotion was contained almost entirely within gospel um, topics, like that 
parents could get emotional in like a testimony meeting or giving a blessing. Um, but things that were more personal and maybe would have had more connective capacity for these children that were struggling with their faith, there was just no emotional communication. Um, almost like they just didn't know how or, yeah, didn't, maybe didn't. And I think that's generational too. I think, um, yeah, there are lots of reasons that lots of us grew up not knowing how to express emotion. And the third form of disconnection, which was showing up for all of these um, kids in my study, was that their parents were disconnected from the present moment. And I thought that this was really interesting just because there's like this overwhelming data now, all of this research showing the benefits of mindfulness and the benefits of really being able to be present in the present moment and knowing that depression and anxiety are generally living in, you know, obsessing about the past and the future. And so the more you can come back to the present moment, generally the better your mental health states, you know, can be. Um, but these parents tended to be pretty preoccupied with the eternal family that they had lost. And there was a lot of grief for the parents. They were, I would say, consumed in many cases with grief over what had been lost in the future. Um, and the cost of that was that they were sacrificing opportunities for connection in the present moment. And so they would have these kids over for Sunday dinner and the topic of conversation would be, oh, I'm just, you know, they would be fretting about, about not being united in the hereafter. And I, I there was one 22-year-old subject who said, I don't know how to comfort them. They're acting like I've died and I'm sitting right there. But it's like the parents are grieving as if these children in many cases are already dead um, because they're so heartbroken, I think genuinely heartbroken by the decisions that their children are making. And I don't want to minimize the heartbreak and the grief when our children choose something different from what we had hoped for. It is heartbreaking. I think it can be very painful. Um, But the cost of that is so high. It's so costly. And so I would encourage those parents to sort of come back to the present moment with those kids because in the present moment, those kids are sitting at Sunday dinner saying like, I don't know if I want to be with you for eternity. If this is what it's going to be like, if this is all we can ever talk about, um, they're not very interested in that. That's a really good segment. And I think as I read some of those stories in your paper, and a shout out to Ashley Chamberlain, who sent me your paper and kind of <laughs> made this whole podcast possible. I was, one of the things I heard is that a lot of these um, people that had stepped away from the church are accomplishing great things in their life. It's not like they're, um, whether it's academic or career, um, and sometimes, and I probably do this as a parent too, I, I use a set of eyes to evaluate my kids versus the things that are important to them and they're evaluating themselves and perhaps fail to see some of their accomplishments and the good that they're doing, even mm-hmm. if it's outside of met my original expectations or hopes. Now, my wife and I do have six children that are all in the church, so we are not walking this road that some of you are walking parents that have had children that step away, so I can't totally understand your road. Don't pretend to, but I I do love what you, some of those stories is instead of seeing what you're, you know, seeing what might become of our future, you know, let's change the conversation to talk about you know, I've always, there's a book I read, 
that talked in term always talk in terms of another man or another woman's interests. If I'm going to be a good conversationalist, I think what's important to you mm. that you'd like to talk about um, and try to, as I'm trying to have good personal interaction, I try to think, you know, what's on your mind? Are you a Utah jazz fan? Are you, what's important to you? And sort of talk in terms of another person's interests and as a way to just to bring communication together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that. I love what you're saying. Cause what you're, this is something I talk about a lot with the parents that I work with, which is that as the adults in the relationship and as the parents in the relationship, it's our job really to own that and to meet our children where they are at um, rather than try to move them to where we are at. And I think being able to meet them there with curiosity and love is critical really to, to good, to the kinds of relationships that I think we all want to have. I don't, and that's part of the values conversation that I think is so interesting is I don't know, I don't know any parents who, if you asked them for a list of values, would um, would share the kinds of things that are sort of like showing up in this data. You know, well, it's really important to me to be right. It's really important to me, you know, like these sort of like rigid, certain, um, uncurious, these people that are showing up, I would, I, I would guess that that doesn't accurately describe anyone's values. But they're showing up, um, I think, because... We don't know how to, I guess, use curiosity to sort of step into our values and to live our values, particularly when our children are disappointing us or even breaking our hearts. And I think what you said about those, um, the kids who are doing really great things in their lives, like this was the most accomplished, fascinating group of people. I had a really hard time staying focused while I was interviewing them on my topic because I wanted to hear about everything that they were doing for work. A lot of them were very successful um, and, and just, yeah, just very accomplished. Um, and so it's interesting to me that their parents don't really ask and don't really want to know. And I think I have this one quote that I want to share from, I think, she, I think this subject was 28, if I remember right. And she said, I always have the underlying feeling that whatever I'm doing, it just isn't quite good enough. I know that my parents love me, but it always makes me feel bad that they're disappointed, that there's something missing, that I'll never actually meet their expectations. I feel proud of what I'm doing in my life and I'm excited and I want to share it with them, but I know that they'll never quite see it. Their love for me will always be qualified. It's a really honest one. Yeah. There's pain there because you want to be seen. Everybody has a human need to be seen yeah as particularly by the people that are close to them yeah. parents probably being the most important and and yeah yeah and i think that drive to be seen is so it's so primal and so natural and so necessary really and it's the question of unconditional love um and it's the question that the you know the toddler screaming on the floor of the grocery store is asking is like well do you love me now <laughs> What about now? And I think all they all they need to know is like, yes, of course. Yes, of course. And it's the same question that's coming from these 27, 28-year-olds in my study that are showing this part of themselves to their parents and kind of saying, but do you love me now? This is in no way unique to Mormon families. But of course, the Mormon families are the one that I'm 
the ones that I'm most acquainted with just because of where I live. And I think it's fascinating. What would you say, I'm thinking of Facebook questions that I see or get, um, what would you say to parents that say, I have one child that stepped away from the church and I'm at peace with that, but it's really hard because that child is trying to pull all the other children with him or her who really are fine being in the church, mm-hmm. but there's a, and they're uncomfortable with the role that child's playing with the other children. Any thoughts on what you do as a parent in that situation? Yeah, I think that's really hard. Um, and I think, I think my answer is the same kind of a, a one hit wonder maybe, but curiosity. I think that if those parents could get together with that child with curiosity and say, what's, what's the goal here? And really try to understand the pain that that child is probably acting out of um, and create more space for understanding all of the reasons that that child left. I think there's a part of me that thinks that they might be kind of misappropriating the conversation that they can't have with the parents and sort of dividing it up among the siblings maybe and saying like, but did you know this? But did you know that? Um, and making a case, however compelling it may be, and I think the other thing is um, that's a that's a yeah. really thoughtful answer. By the way, <laughs> I hope our listeners heard that. Um, I, that's not an answer I would have thought of on my own, but it's mm-hmm. an answer that resonates really well with me. So, just so our listeners heard that, if I'm the parent with a kid that stepped away, I should spend time with that kid that stepped away. And listen to why that kid stepped away. Yeah. I think they need a place to talk about it. And honesty. And if there's pain there to validate that pain and and really honor our baptism covenants to mourn, bear, and comfort. Yeah. And to sit with that child. I've learned listeners to sit with people in their pain, even if I don't totally understand that pain or or the very place they're getting pain is the place I get joy. Right. (laughs) And not try to convince them that they should be feeling joy when they feel pain. But I think your point then that because they don't, this may not be true in every situation. And some parents say, I did that. It didn't work. But mm-hmm. I think, it, I think your point about if that person can feel fully heard, perhaps that's enough then to not, because pain leads to anger and behavior. But if that pain can be validated at that level, perhaps there is less of a need for that child to then try to pull everybody else and sort of project that pain in a way that maybe even that child recognizes is not helpful to other people. Yeah. I'm almost in my head. I'm seeing like a, like a boxing ring. Um, and I think a lot of times when people leave, they take one corner and put on their gloves and whoever disagrees with them is almost forced into the opposite corner, whether they want to fight or not, they're forced into a position of defending or holding their ground, or whatever it is. And it becomes this um, polarity, this conflict that I think it doesn't need to be. And I think what I'm imagining is that for that child who is hurting and is ready to fight and ready to take others out with them, um, yeah, I think I'm imagining the parents taking the gloves off and kind of sidling over up into that other corner and saying like, oh, I'm here with you. You actually don't need to, I want to understand you don't need to convince me. Um, I'm going to let go of my certainty and not my certainty that this is the right thing for me and that it brings me a lot of joy and that this is my path back to God. 
But I wonder what it would look like for parents to let go of their certainty that my path back to God is everyone's path back to God. Like, what if there are as many ways back to Heavenly Father as there are children of Heavenly Father? Um, And so, yeah, just sort of refusing to engage in that fight. And instead of instead of taking up that opposite corner, which is so tempting and holding the position of I know what you're doing is wrong. What if you take the gloves off and sort of, yeah, and get curious? And I like what you said about validating the pain, even when we can't always validate the story. I think that that's something that as parents, we're called on to do a lot. Um, that our children's perspectives, especially when they're younger, are pretty skewed sometimes with what happened with little injustices or whatever. Um, and then when they get older, they can be pretty big injustices. And sometimes the perspective is still skewed, but I think that we can always validate the emotion and we can always validate the pain without necessarily going into the story too much. And I think what that does is it creates the message that your reality, your experience is more important to me than my comfort. And I'm willing to kind of put down my comfort, my need to be right, my certainty, and create space for your reality. Um, there's a couple reference supports that we haven't talked about too often on this podcast. There's a Facebook group called Bridges Support for Latter-day Saint Parents of Adult Children. And it's a group you can find on Facebook and join it. It's for parents that are active Latter-day Saints that have adult children that have stepped away. And the goal is for those parents to find community together to sort of process this. And a lot of the conclusions are the very things you're suggesting, Liz. And there's not, we don't have these kind of discussions very often at church. And so parents sometimes feel really isolated and lack the tools. And maybe because they lack the tools, do some of the things that your research is finding is not helpful. So um, I encourage our listeners, if you're on Facebook and you fall into that group, it's a really good group. Um, Another article I really like is the one that my brother Dave Osler wrote that's in LDS Living. You could Google David Osler and LDS Living, and it's six tips for parents of adult children who don't believe in the church. And I'll just read those. Don't preach or lecture. Listen to understand and validate. You were, use words that affirm. Don't use labels. Accept and love them fully. Remember agency and the love of our heavenly parents. Take care of yourself. So I think a lot of those things, Liz, would identify with what you're sharing with us. Yeah, bingo. I think that that sums it up so nicely. And I think um, one more thing that I just want to touch on, I, we talked about the children who were, you know, so successful and so accomplished and doing all these important things that the parents didn't want to know about. And then interestingly, <laughs> um, there's sort of a flip side of that coin where any sort of struggle or suffering Um, these children anticipated that it would be blamed on the fact that they had left the church and so they would hide that. And so this just sort of continues that like fragmenting and the hiding and the lying. Um, There were multiple subjects who had been divorced, which was of course incredibly difficult and painful. Um, Many were struggling with depression and other kind of mental health issues, partly because of um, all of this kind of change and the loss of support from their parents. Um. And, you know, loss loss of jobs and all of these just really normal kinds of huge transitions that 
I think most of us, many of us face in our 20s that are so normal, but the, the sort of the apprehension of these children that if I say anything to my mom and dad about my struggles, their answer will be, well, you should have stayed in the church or why don't you go back to church and that'll get better. And enough of them had actually tried that, had tried opening up and tried sharing. And that had been the response, which felt incredibly, I think, invalidating and kind of minimizing and just not very helpful. And so then the result was that they just ended up hiding all sorts of struggles. I had a couple, um, a couple of my subjects were married to each other and they were, I interviewed them together and they were kind of laughing and kind of, <laughs> I guess, um, in a not very happy way about how they, every time they went to see their parents, they had to put on like a different face and a different voice almost and show up really cheerful and really like everything's great and we're not Mormon and it can still be great. Really trying to prove, like putting a lot of energy into proving that this part of their life was a valid way to live in a way that I just feel like is so unnecessary that people get divorced and people have mental health struggles and people lose jobs and have economic insecurity in the church and out of the church. And returning to the church is not um, not necessarily going to solve all of those problems, or and it's certainly not going to save you from any of that sort of heartache. And so I think not pretending like that's the case is just, it seems, yeah, it seems really unloving to kind of throw that in someone's face when they're suffering, I think. I agree with what you said. Uh, as a parent, I just want to create a culture where our kids will tell me what's going on in their lives. And because as a parent, I pray that in those moments when things aren't going well, that they will feel safe to open up to me and my wife. Yeah. And because I want to walk with my kids on the roads they're actually on, not the ones they're sort of projecting that they're on, because yeah. then I can help them. And I think one of the things you suggest on how to do that is I have to be real and authentic myself. Mm. And I think that when I'm appropriately vulnerable and appropriately real, age appropriate, then I think it creates a family culture that my kids can be vulnerable, real with me. I'm not the perfect parent. Um, but I love, so I just, you know, but I think if you've got kids that have stepped away, that is probably an added thing they want to, it's just an added thing they've got to project. And I think you've, if you've got kids that step away, it makes me say, I want, you, I want to, you to tell me your happy days and your bad days. And I'm not going to say this is because you left the church. I'm going to, I would want to say that I want to walk with you. I, I just like this visual because I used to do it with the YSAs that weren't active in the church. I said, I'll walk with you. My relationship with you as your bishop is not conditional on you returning to activity in the church. Mm. I will walk with you and just be involved in your lives. And you let me know how I can help. You set the agenda. Some had no desire to come back to the church, but needed my help in other areas of their life. And I was just glad to help them mm. wherever they felt I could be helpful. And I love this quote. I put it in the book by Harper Dawn Forsgren. She tweeted it out one day several years ago. Um, we as Latter-day Saints need to love people because they deserve to be loved, not because our love will bring them back. Mm. And I call it the non-agenda love that you're sharing, Liz. And to me, that is where Christ wants us to be. Yeah. And I don't say this in a manipulative way, but I know when I share non-agenda love with people in my lives, if they ever felt their path were to change, 
they're not so, they'd be more likely to open up to me um, and say, maybe this isn't actually working for me Mm -hmm. because they haven't had to dig their heels in. I don't know what the right wording is. They haven't become so ego involved with proving that decision. They don't have to to walk it back with somebody that just loves them and accepts where they are and hasn't had a big agenda to change them. But I say that, listeners, not because I still want to come back to non-agenda love. I just am aware that when I practice non-agenda love, people sometimes open up to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it opens up the conversation in such a beautiful way because I don't know a single person who has left who has not grieved what has been lost. Right. And who ha- who doesn't feel the loss keenly, even if they still feel it's the right thing for them. Um, and... I don't know very many people who have stayed fully active who also don't feel grief about their activity and about different things, different aspects of policies that are frustrating or hurtful or damage that they see being done inadvertently, um, even with all of the good intentions. And so I think the more, yeah, the more that we can, I think on both sides of this conflict, kind of hold that space for the fact that I, I will love people because it's who I want to be, because people deserve to be loved um, without an agenda of bringing them back or of taking them out of the church, then I think it really does open up the conversation in a way that could be really safe and really healing. And I think um, my family, after listening, (laughs) my family didn't know that I did this research project until after it was done, primarily because I was very busy, but also because we don't Um, We don't talk about personal stuff very often. We talk a lot about what we've heard on NPR and the books that we're reading. Um, And so my family listened to a different podcast interview that I did. And then my brother who lives in Singapore said, why don't we all just get together? I like, I've never asked you why you don't go to church, but you've never asked me why I do go to church. And I said, well, fair enough. This is like, this is a two-way street. Let's get together. So he's in Singapore. My other brother's in Idaho, but all five of us with our spouses and our parents got together on Zoom because that's how everything happens now over Christmas break, actually. And we all took about probably a half an hour each. We were on Zoom for almost three hours and everybody just had a chance to say, to tell stories, really, you know, and to say, gosh, dad, do you remember? And that was, I had stories just flooding back with, with him coming home from church while I was home making a sandwich and he knew I was supposed to be in Sunday school, but I had like, I had walked home, which was a major commitment. The church was like at least, at least two and a half miles from our house. So I'm making a sandwich. He comes home from his steak meetings and he's making a sandwich next to me. He's just quiet and I can feel him kind of not seething, but like, you know, disappointed, <laughs> like radiating some sort of energy that I'm like, oh, shrinking away from. And I remember him saying, oh, well, Lizzie, I just can't wait for you to get to a place where there's nowhere you'd rather be than in church. And I think I was 13 or 14 at this time. And I remember saying, oh, me too. Like, when is that going to happen for me? Because I was not there when I was 13 or 14. I wasn't there when I was 17. I wasn't there when I was 21 and got married in the temple. It was never like that for me. And for us to all sit down and genuinely just listen to each other's experiences, where I got to share, this has always felt so hard for me. And for my sister to get to share, this has always felt so nourishing to me. Um, 
And it has brought her so much joy. And for us to all just create the space for that kind of a conversation, it's, I know if you hang out with enough researchers long enough, you'll hear someone say research is me-search, <laughs> which is, yeah, PhDs love saying that. But um, I think it's true. And I think I, I was hoping that maybe if enough of this kind of research was done, that maybe we could start to shift the culture over the course of a couple of decades. But it's remarkable to me, the number of people that have reached out to me and told me that they've had similar conversations to what I had with my family, just after hearing an interview, after reading my paper, um, and after sort of reflecting on like, gosh, I wonder if I should ask my little brother why he hates going to church. And it's so affirming to me. It affirms my sense um, and kind of my devotion to my LDS family which is, you know, the whole LDS community, I feel so devoted and so affectionate. Um, And I think, I know that the intentions are good. I know that the hearts are in the right place. And so I guess my hope is that through better information and maybe some more accurate storytelling, some more accurate ways of framing the experiences of why people are leaving and what that experience is like for them, that we can have more compassion and find more common ground more easily and really just stay connected, particularly within families as much as possible, because I, I feel so blessed to be so close to my family and I want, I kind of want that for everyone. That's a really, that's a good segment to end on. I'll hand it back to you for any final comments, but I just think of our heavenly parents and that three hour zoom call with your family and I can't speak for heavenly parents, but I think that really makes them happy mm-hmm. I think to so see. And I think it made all of your family happy to see all of you together, supporting each other, listening about each other's experience and having the maturity just honor where everybody is. And I think that's just brings us together. It's back to other cooks quote, um, unity and diversity There's diversity within your home, but there's unity when you have a three hour zoom call <laughs> And there's just more authentic, vulnerable, real connection when you're ta- having these kind of discussions that I think we'd want to have, but often would lack the tools to have them. Yeah. Um, just some more references to podcasts that come up for those of you that haven't heard. Episode 358 is Andrea Forsyth. Mm-hmm. I think you know Andrea. She's in Colorado and they had... Um, it wasn't a formal release society event, but um, several release society sisters got together when a, a sister in their ward felt her path was to separate herself from the church and just thanked her for all her service and just said, just, and I just thought, you know, the likelihood, and just thought, you know, the connection she will continue to have with these release society sisters as she felt her path was not to stay in the church. I thought that was awesome. And I recognize how we handle people leaving the church often kind of all the difference to how they feel about the church outside of the church, um, the amount of pain and anger and hurt they feel. If we point to them and say, that's what's wrong with the world, all the shaming comments. But if we just live this higher, holier law, another really good episode, listeners, is episode um, 293, Krista Mortensen and Kyra Dunchy. Um, Krista did an Ensign article about what she's done in her family with some children that have left the church. 
and her sister was on the podcast with her. That Ensign article is the July 2020, and it's the title of the Ensign article is You Love, He Saves. And that's exactly what Liz is, is teaching us. So those are just some more resources. I want to hand it back to Liz. I want to make sure Liz gives out her email and the website she's put together and any closing comments. All right. Well, um, yeah, my I, this was so fun. I enjoyed it so much. I would love to hear from any listeners who want to reach out. I'm on Facebook, Liz Brown McDonald. Um, I don't post very often or very meaningfully, <laughs> but I do. I am on occasionally. My email address is Lizzie MacD, and it's just spelled L-I-Z-Y-M-A-C-D at Gmail. And um, I have a website where I offer parenting classes together with my wonderful mother-in-law. And that website is parentfromtheinsideout.com, just the way it sounds. And yeah, I thanks again. That was a pleasure. It's great. Great having you on the podcast, Liz. And um, just one last plug on another resource. It's the brother. It's the book that my brother wrote that sort of became uh, part of that LDS Living article. It's called Bridges, Ministering to Those Who Question. And it talks about many of the same principles Liz is sharing about how to have these meaningful conversations. And I just actually go back to the, par- the doctrine of the Good Shepherd. I think the Good Shepherd knew his sheep well enough to know um, where those sheep were, whether they're in the fold or out of the fold, quote unquote. And I think that's part of understanding, you know, adult children that have separated themselves. We know the story. We're willing to do the things Liz says is just tell me your story and tell me why and just sit there with them. And I think that's part of being the good shepherd. I think that's part of our doctrine as Latter-day Saints. So Liz McDonald, you're awesome. Mm-hmm. And your way to go getting your bachelor's degree in psychology, getting this capstone paper written, and just your work to bring us together as the same human family. So this is Richard Osler and Liz McDonald signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>